Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. What will it take to tokenize the securities markets? Now, if you've ever thought the cost of equity capital is too high, that the transaction costs of buying and selling securities are excessive, that the spreads on mutual fund investments are outrageous, if you've ever wondered why the returns on private equity investing seem to belong to so few people and organizations, why it's so hard to buy a corporate bond, why the minimum investment thresholds for real estate are so high, if you've ever thought it would make sense to own some gold, some corn, some wheat, some classic cars, some collectible watches, or simply to trade unlisted stocks and shares without being pumped and dumped, if you've ever thought any of these things, you'll find it's quite impossible to get it, not to get excited about the possibilities opened up by the tokenization of securities and funds. My question is, why are we taking so long to realize them? And to help us address that and many other questions, I'm joined by five people who in their different ways are working out exactly how to get this thing done. Neil Chopra is Director of Business Solutions at Fireblocks, an enterprise-grade software provider that allows you to securely custody, transfer, and settle your digital assets through hot and cold wallet infrastructures and enables you to deliver digital asset products and services to market. David Dalton is a partner at Deloitte's where his responsibilities include leading the EMEA Grid Blockchain Lab. Jack McDonald is CEO at Standard Custody and Trust Company, a polysign subsidiary that provides institutional grade custody for digital assets. Olaf Ransom is head of the CSD function at SDX, the integrated token issuance, trading, settlement and custody platform owned by the Swiss Stock Exchange. Rajiv Tamala is director of the digital team at HSBC Security Services, where his responsibilities include tokenization and digital assets. As always, at a Future of Finance webinar, in addition to our panelists, we have you, our audience, and all five of us, no, six of us, in fact, encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your screens. Rest assured, we won't save them up to the end, but we'll try and answer them as we go along so you can be part of this discussion right from the outset. I'd like to kick our discussion off uh, by asking or reposing the question I put uh, a minute or two ago about why the market is falling short, not just of the hopes we have for security tokenization, but the projections. After all, we have global bond markets, $125 trillion. We have global equity markets, more than $100 trillion. Yet when we look at what's going on in the security token markets, uh, we see projections that this market will grow to eight or, or 10 trillion. Yet when I look at the major sources of information, and I must say the sources of information about the security token markets are pretty sketchy to start with, but I took the trouble to look at the three main ones, uh, take out the duplicates, and I came up with something like about 130 security token issues since 2017. Uh, it's difficult to tell how much they've raised, but it's, I can be pretty confident that many of them have fallen below their target. Uh, Cointelegraph, uh, in a survey they ran, put the amount raised since 2017 by STOs at just $10.3 uh, billion, which is about one thousandth of where uh, the market needs to be by the target Cointelegraph have set themselves uh, of 2025. So I'd like to perhaps ask you first, Neil, um, what is going on here and what do you think are the obstacles to this market really taking off? Is it uh, regulatory uncertainty? Is it the lack of enthusiasm from institutions? Is it lack of enthusiasm from, from issuers? Or is it simply the lack uh, of some kind of infrastructure to reassure people this is a safe place to go? Yeah, I uh, appreciate that, Dominic, and, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, and, and I think it's really all of the above. And, and when I talk about tokenization and blockchain, as I do in my personal life a lot, uh, I like to draw parallels and analogies uh, because a lot of folks, I think, don't really understand this technology and, and kind of what the opportunity is around it. And so if we look back at some of the innovations in the financial markets like digitization and securitization, they really help to drive liquidity, investor access in markets, but it did take time. And, and really the focus for that is uh, having the proper regulatory framework to be able to manage and deliver this 
within consistent infrastructure. And I think a lot of the use cases that we've seen in the market to date have really been on sort of a one-off basis. It's an issuer going to their regulator saying, we want to do this. Are you okay with it? Yes, we can move forward. And they'll then ultimately go on and tokenize, but there's not much that's happening beyond really the tokenization of that asset. And I think the reason for that is because we don't really have clear regulatory framework and structure around it that can then give guidance to the infrastructure providers. So if we talk about brokers, exchanges, investors, how do we then manage custody, settle these assets once they're tokenized? In the US, I think we all kind of see what's happening here. Different regulatory bodies feel different ways about different types of digital assets. And so uh, I think we really need to, to get some consistency out there, both in the U.S. as well as abroad, uh, so that we can really drive uh, liquidity and adoption within this market. Dominic, if I could, could I just add one point to that? I, I totally agree yeah. with what Neil yeah. just said. And I would also uh, posit that these different factors are moving at different speeds. I think three, four years ago, the answer would have ranked a lack of institutional grade infrastructure among the top factors. And I think infrastructure has actually come a long way in the last two or three years and is now uh, really leading, uh, leading the pack in terms of, of giving a pathway towards future tokenization where we're really waiting for guidance. And I think the guidance or lack of guidance rather is also affecting the issue or appetite is a lack of regulatory clarity. And I think we get more clarity there, you're gonna see uh, a pretty quick adoption curve. Jack, just to be clear, the, the U.S. environment for STOs is actually favorable. Most of them seem to be taking place there one way or another. So the continuing uncertainty, things like the, the litigation with Ripple, for example, don't seem to be putting a small number of people off. Is it safe to say that, uh, that U.S. securities law provides uh, a, a very accommodating environment for anyone planning an STO? Uh, I, I, I would say that a little bit differently. I think the, you know, specifically around the issue of what's a security and what's not, there's a, there's a well-trodden uh, Howey test. The mm -hmm. definition or, or um, analysis of the Howey test is very murky. You can go to a law firm and say, here are the five reasons why it may be a security and here are the five reasons why it may not be. And, you know, it's up to you to choose where your risk appetite is. So while, while there is some guidance in the U.S. around specifically securities, I think we still have uh, a great need for much greater clarity around how this industry is going to evolve before you get the issuers really comfortable, as well as some of the large uh, organizations, uh, global custodians, et cetera, that gain the comfort of actually moving forward in a meaningful way in this, in this area. Mm -hmm. And Dominic, I think I'd say as well, that you know, the institutions have to realize the first steps are just a pain in the neck, right? You do the first couple of issues, it's extra. It's money in another place, it's assets in another place you've got to have some conviction over more than just a two-year period. So all of us, as we do all these things, we're always fighting the fact that at some, in some business, in some of the banks, somebody's just deciding, that, well, it's not going to help me in the next two years, so why should I care? Uh, which is a problem not just for, general, uh, for digital assets, but it's a general one right across the board. So you need some high-level sponsorship for the banks to say, hey, Let's do these first issues. We'll do the second issues, third issues, and, and, and bring that along. Now, just Switzerland compared to the US, for example, very nice certain regulatory regime can issue securities tokens. That's not a problem. But now you need all the banks to play along and process the stuff. And that, uh, that's always a challenge, hurting those cats. So we, it's the banks that are the blocker, not the issuers. If the banks recruited the issuers, this market would take off. And Dominic, can I just pick up on that point, actually, because uh, I just wanted to make a build on a, a couple of things. Um, firstly, we, we just recently surveyed about 25 of the leading European and actually US banks of operations in Europe uh, just on this whole topic. And I would say three quarters of them felt that, you know, uh, this tokenization, security tokenization presents a very significant opportunity in the medium term. However, majority of them are not doing anything to realize that, you know, mm -hmm. in the got a plans in the next two to three years. And um, when we asked them why that was the case, I mean, the biggest barrier came back to this reg regulatory uh, uncertainty point. And actually one of the interesting points that came out of that was actually a desire for much better kind of global coordination around regulation. That's seen as a, you know, a significant challenge. And then just to emphasize that point around ecosystem and the relatively immature state of the ecosystem 
you know, in this space as well. But I, the only other point I just wanted to make as well was I, I looked back actually at the market cap for cryptocurrencies in September 2015. They were at four billion. They're now at two trillion. So, you know, these things can grow rapidly over time. So I just kind of give that as an interesting precedent as well. Yeah. So Dominic, just to add to uh, David's point, uh, is you got you also have to look at it over a probably a slightly longer horizon. Right? If you just go back a little little while ago, look at how long did it take the securities industry to move from paper-based to current dematerialized form. You know, it basically took. You know, it started off in the 1970s, and you know, you could basically look at uh, a lot more mature markets. Uh, you know, still doing the de dematerialization in early 2000. So it's it's close to 40 years. I'm sure that, you know, this wave of change, you know, what we are talking about is simply change of representing assets using tech, right? There's more, a lot more software that's going to be used to represent assets than what we have today. Uh, and, you know, all we have experienced, the, the technology has matured a bit in the last four years. And as uh, David uh, mentioned, right, it takes an ecosystem to move this, um, this representation to move forward. And that's where I think the biggest hurdle is. And, you know, moving ecosystems needs coordination and there are overheads for coordination. So everybody jumps on to the regulatory clarity because that is one thing that can give a push in equal terms to everybody in the ecosystem. So it's saying that that becomes uh, clear and then you can move. So there are two reasons why uh, tokenization should also come in is, you know, one is, you know, in the traditional space, you could get a lot more efficiencies, but, you know, do, does that efficiency really move the needle? The second aspect that tokenization brings is access to new asset classes, like you were mentioning. So, uh, and these are the two main drivers uh, and, you know, and, and the incumbents are going to look for efficiencies uh, and they're going to basically build their ROI cases using that. And the new entrants would probably, uh, you know, make a business out of the new asset classes. And some, some point in time, these two worlds would converge. Uh, and now we are all arguing about, you know, how soon will that happen? You know, and, you know, why is it not moving as fast as we think it should move? Yeah, this ecosystem makes me think of a bunch of Englishmen trying to decide who should go through a door first. It's like, well, you go, no, no, you go first like this. So it kind of needs somebody to to do something. But uh, um, Rajiv, you, you brought up the question of, of asset classes. Which do you think are the primary access of growth for this market? We've heard a lot about privately managed assets. We're starting to yep. hear about uh, shifting OTC stocks, you know, like the pink sheets market in the US uh, into a tokenized format. What's your your bet from a, an Asian and a global perspective as to where action will begin from an asset class point of view? So there, there are two ways we have to look at the asset classes. Uh, Dominic is uh, is definitely the privately managed illiquid asset classes where uh, you know which are being chased. And right now, you know, there's huge swath of investor base that does not have access to it just because of the minimum ticket sizes. You know, that's an attractive uh, use case. The second, though, uh, which I think will basically drive the market, would be the non-fungible collectible. Uh, token market. So that's that's where, you know, if you basically look at these two asset classes and ask yourself, uh, which is likely to basically move forward uh, and where democratization will hit. And today we are seeing NFT market basically moving much faster. And, and that should give you, that will potentially give the other illiquid asset classes the potential of uh, what can happen when you bring down, right? So, and, and, and that that is what I think potentially the trigger uh, for the traditional either private or public securities market to sort of move move along the line. But I do think new asset classes might lead the way here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and just to sort of add on to that as well, I, I think we're viewing this maybe from like a market and regulatory perspective. I, I think that there's a key component around the technology side as well. And so when we look at some of these asset classes, anything that governs tokenization is governed by a smart contract. And so if you can automate and, and uh, basically put uh, code around decision-making for what happens with a particular security, then there's, in theory, you can easily tokenize that. When we look at some of these markets, uh, like the private equity markets, as an example, 
uh, there's very unique sort of requirements around it. So right of first refusal, as an example, where how do you embed something like that within a smart contract to ensure that, yes, once this is now issued, I can uh, I can make it available to the broader market. Um, so that, I think, is a big consideration that needs to be made. And, and I think we've seen a, a lot of use cases around real estate bonds uh, and things of that nature that are, are difficult to get access to because of the minimum ticket sizes uh, that we have today. But when we start to get into some of these more unique asset classes that have some of these specific requirements, I, I think that that's going to take a lot of consideration around uh, the technology side as well. Let me throw a vote in there, Dominic, as well for um, working capital debt. Um, that, that has a place, particularly um, in Europe. There's and people recover from firms recover from COVID and all its implications. There's a demand for working capital, and the smaller, medium-sized enterprises probably need debt before they need equity. Uh, and there's a demand side. The banks are a little restricted with their balance sheets with uh, impending Basel IV. Um, I think views vary on whether that's going to be uh, have a big impact or a little impact, but those small medium-sized enterprises need access to that working capital the old ring up the bank increase the loan or line of credit is probably a, a route that's going to get needs to get replaced um, so that that working capital debt short term up to a year um, feels like a, a space and SDX are already seeing specific interest around that um, with people coming with new ideas so rather than hey do, do a token issue rather than a share issue, uh, which is a hard sell. Um, European, European banks also loaded to the gunnels with non-performing loans they could tokenize too. Absolutely. Actually, Dominic, it's interesting because we, as part of that survey I was referencing earlier, the three asset classes that they called out as kind of top of their list was debt, real estate, and the liquid assets. So just to add to that, I just have, I have a kind of slightly contrarian perspective on this as well, which is... Huh? Um, I think when you look at when you look at the demand side of this and the investor groups that are you know investing in these types of asset classes, you know high net worths, ultra high net worths are a big concept, particularly on the kind of the crypto space. I, I think they're going to be instructive as to where you know which asset classes are most likely to kind of take off in, in in the in the shorter term, and that's why I think things like collectibles, art, etc., are kind of really interesting areas. And I, want yeah, to be, and I want to be born in a sec to, um, to to was that you, Jack? No, sorry, Dominic, just just one other yeah. thing to add. I think there's uh, kind of an interesting layer if we even take a step back from just the tokenization uh, specifically and, and looking at, well, what is the opportunity beyond that? And I think the SockGen uh, news from, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, kind of shows what the um, what that next phase or evolution of tokenization is where you can then take a tokenized asset and, and leverage DeFi protocols and pools to then be able to pledge those assets. And, and uh, I think that's kind of a really interesting element of it that a lot of financial institutions aren't necessarily talking about specifically today. And it's very much focused on just the tokenization of the actual asset. And I suspect it'll give the regulators the heebie-jeebies. Um, <laughs> talking of which, we, we, we've had a, um, a question from a member of our audience, Martin Watkins, who says, if the regulators start to align, uh, does the panel believe the application of English law and the stability of the English courts offer a strategic benefit for the adoption of tokens through the London market? Well, London is certainly leading Europe in this sense, but it's not leading the world uh, on tokenization. Um, do any of you have a have a, a view on that question? Does is English law the the obvious choice to get this market underway from a legal and regulatory perspective? I won't ask you, Jack, because it's a very unfair yeah. question. For we, you. We've got um, we've got several proof of concepts going on. One in the UK, one in um, in Luxembourg. Obviously, I'm based in the US. I I. Um, respectfully haven't heard English law being uh, promoted as the you know ultimate rule of law on a global basis when you envision you know regulatory uh, collaboration across the globe I don't have a strong opinion of what that would be but that's not something in my travels that I've heard proposed Rajiv have you heard anything you're in you're in Asia is it being talked about there yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, comes up, props up in the conversations, right? So some parts of Asia do follow, as you know, English law. Uh, so they, they could potentially be taking the lead from what's happening in, in the UK. Uh, but I also think that uh, it's not, it's going to be some kind of regulatory collaboration that needs to kick in 
uh, for this to happen. We are a, we are far more globalized today than let's say you know 20 or 30 years ago. So uh, in order for these things to scale globally, there needs to be some kind of a regulatory uh, you know coordination that needs to happen, especially in this space. In mm-hmm. and and that kind of collaboration also would sort of aid tokenization standards to come through, and that's also another uh, other thing that would help develop uh, this particular ecosystem right today you have a lot of choices if you want to just go out there and issue tokens but you know how these how should these things interoperate uh, across boundaries you know those kind of things are also holding the adoption back mm-hmm. now dare i suggest it one of the things that might be holding up progress is the fact there are a lot of intermediaries there who are making a very good living out of the current system and have a, a lower incentive if you like to to change what they're what they're doing because ultimately the pitch here from 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 us tokenizer enthusiasts is that you're going to have a lower cost of, of capital you're going to have a a lower transaction cost you're going to have greater liquidity and so on all those things i i listed at the outset that does entail i think the disintermediation of various service providers that currently stand between issuers and and investors and I, I sort of find that uh institutional investors in particular seem to speak with a forked tongue on this they say yeah we'd love the you know, the, the lower transaction costs and the higher performance and the greater liquidity, but, but we also like having custodian banks and fund administrators and stock exchanges and brokers and market makers and global managers, and, you know, all these intermediaries, which ostensibly might disappear. I mean, are, am I right to, to think that, that ultimately institutions have to choose here? What's your view on that? So let, Jack? let- let me jump in, okay. <laughs> Dominic, sorry. Okay, you yeah, go so, first, then Jack. Yeah, I go for that, and then uh, Jack probably. So you got to look at the value chain, and you know, intermediaries are there in the value chain to serve a particular purpose, and when new technology sort of kicks in, uh, or when new capabilities are, are coming through the market, you kind of question. I would, instead of focusing on the intermediary, I would basically try to focus on the function the intermediary provides, and can, can this new paradigm actually execute the same function in a much more efficient way is the question that we need to be asking. So, and when we start to look at that way, uh, you will find that these functions will continue to evolve and and how the intermediary intermediary performs that particular function uh, is what is important. So, you know, can the network function, you know, function as, you know, fund administrator or a transfer agent or, or a custodian, and, and still you need a, a legal entity potentially responsible for other people in the ecosystem to be comfortable with it. And these things will evolve over a period of time. What I, I do think is that how the functions will be performed will change, uh, but the functions would still be relevant. Uh, and, you know, definitely, right? Technology will automate away some of the functions and, you know, some new functions might become relevant. That's but, how but, I would but, like to but, see but, the evolution but, of the value chain. Yeah. Evolution involves extinction as well, Rajiv. So, Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I'm saying I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, yeah. Jack, can I draw you into this? And while you, while you speak about this, Jack, um, um, a member of our audience, Vigo Sacrison, has asked the question, um, any chance you could elaborate a bit more on your US, UK, Luxembourg, positioning specifically with regard to regulatory legal maturity and ecosystem maturity. In other words, you're being asked whether your business is, is, is finding it easier in terms of the maturity of the legal regulatory environment in the US than it is in the UK or Luxembourg. But- so let me try to answer. I, I totally agree with what Rajiv just said. I, I don't think the functions that exist today in the traditional capital markets are going to disappear. In a polysign, uh, we preach evolution, not revolution. We're trying to work within the construct of the current capital markets because the type of investors that we're targeting, or type of clients, I should say, are institutional uh, investors, institutional asset managers, and we're working with other institutional grade service providers. We have a proof of concept going on right now in um, the UK with a, a large global asset manager, a top 10 asset manager, who is creating a digital feeder fund for an open-ended institutional real estate fund. And they wanted to use as much as possible the current service providers that they use, one of which is a large global uh, investment bank, top five. And part of the reason why they want to do it is because it's a lot less resistance internally to get approvals if they can use the same fund administrator, the same transfer agency, or agent rather, the same fiat custodian. This particular global bank is most uh, is the case with most of them, don't have a digital asset custodian. So w- we provide that service. We're also building a uh, asset agnostic settlement layer 
that will essentially be the connective tissue between all these different counterparties. And the proof of concept is going quite well. What we're finding is that this one global bank is also in the process of creating a new digital transfer agency business. And so they're very excited about doing this proof of concept because it's helping to accelerate their own internal initiatives while also allowing them to service a client of theirs, a big important client, as that client steps into the future. So I think you're going to see a lot of the legacy service providers evolve and adapt the services that they have and ultimately become more efficient. I totally agree with your, with your um, thesis that there is going to be a lot of resistance to change. There's a lot of hands in the cookie jar that enjoy all of the inefficiency that exists today in T plus two settlement, et cetera. But there will be a tipping point where there's enough client or, or investor demand pushing towards innovation where the incumbents, I think, are going to capitulate. They want to then the next day be ready to service these assets in a more efficient way. And the last thing I would say is, as we've been talking to the large incumbent service providers, they also see a benefit from digitization, blockchain initiatives, DLT, et cetera, around revamping their own legacy processes that are very inefficient. I used to run a fund administrator and doing fund administration for an illiquid real estate fund or an illiquid private equity fund is, is really challenging to get the same kind of margins that you would get out of a pretty efficient public equity sort of product. And so I think you're gonna see a lot of drive towards adopting a new technology to be able to adapt and change. I don't think the, the incumbents are going away. I, I agree with Raju's premise that they'll just adapt over time. And there will be move uh, or opportunities for you know, startups in this space to make big advancements. They're ultimately gonna be bought by these big incumbents uh, over time. I think you're gonna see an M&A boom, but that's probably another question for discussion. Yeah, I'd say there, Dominic, the, you know, the, some of that, what can a smart contract do gets a little overhyped. So to give that working capital example, we're going through it with potential parties involved. Oh, we've got to have someone who's the paying agent, right? Even, even though this is going to get issued um, below par and redeem at par, someone's got to be on the hook for that. You can have all the nice colorful code in the world you want, but we're going to sit there and say, which legal entity is on the hook? to make sure that money's available. So to Rajiv's point, yeah, can't just chuck out all the intermediaries because um, there's uh, babies and bathwater um, going. Hold on, hold on, Olaf, do you, do you still need a paying agent if we have central bank digital currencies on the ledger? Um, somebody's going, somebody has to pay because the issuer, and well, unless the, central, the, the central bank, it be central bank money. So the central bank is on the line. It's the best money you can get, right? Better than anything your paying agent could offer you. But the central bank isn't going to be the paying agent. Well, you don't need the paying agent. It's just a digital form of it's like a it's like being handed a five pound note. In my oh, case, I'd love somebody to hand me one. But well, if I'm due to repay seventy five million Swiss francs euros, whatever tomorrow, some somebody's got to fund that seventy five million. You, and ultimately, whether it's even if it was cash, somebody's got to fund it. Yeah, I was thinking CBD. it would be cash. I was thinking it would be cash, not credit. Yeah, I take your point. Even then, that process doesn't go away from, from one day to the next. Okay. Somebody's got to collect it up, distribute it. Okay. Do you think, yes. while we're on this subject, it's right before you go, Olaf, um, I'm tempted to ask you whether exchanges will survive this process, but certainly I want to ask you what will happen to central counterparty clearinghouses and what will happen to CSDs as the industry evolves? Will they, they have to completely change what they do or do they somehow survive for reasons like um, think paying agents will survive? So I'll, I'll give a view on that based on what we can see happening around the, around the cryptocurrency space. If you, if you want to try and settle things around the cryptocurrency space, you can shorten settlement times, and you, but you still got risk, market risk between the time you trade and the, try, and the time you settle, because you're not going to settle absolutely continuously. That, that's one part. I think you may have a new way of doing custody where you have distributed asset custody. So um, uh, looking here at Neil, um, 100 of his clients could go buy the same Fireblocks machine. The only thing they've got in common is that they're all sending Neil a check at the end of the quarter, at the end of the month, um, or a payment for, for using his software. But those things aren't connected. There's no one institution has got possession and control uh, of those assets like an ICSD or a CSD. I think that's going to evolve. And I think you should, you'd expect to see CSDs have to think about 
what's the service that's then needed if you have decentralized execution venues, decentralized asset custody, and decentralized means of payment. Well, you still got to settle trades. And if you've anyone who's been on to call looked at the world of cryptocurrencies, um, it's a mess. All right, for all these nice young kids who think they've done great stuff in uh, cryptocurrencies, to cri anything around settlement and cryptocurrencies, it's just BS. It's everything wrong that we've corrected over the last forty years. Uh, back to my, you know, some of that, some of that structure needs to be there, and uh, as Rajiv said, it will evolve slightly, uh, but it's not the instant death of uh, of every intermediary. Yep, it's expensive. I, I, yeah, I, just on that note as well, I think it also is maybe looking at it through the lens of like, what are centralized parties today and can technology replace that? So rather than having counterparty risk to a central clearing party, to a CSD, you now need to figure out and assess what is your risk to the technology or to the code or to the smart contract which essentially is governing everything that's happening with these tokens. So I think that there is another lens to look at this from. And I do think that there is probably in the longer term versus the short and medium, uh, the, the disintermediation of a lot of these uh, counterparties and intermediaries that are within these transactions today. I don't think it's going to go away in the short term, um, but, but I do think that as standardization comes along, as there's more trust uh, being put into the technology that we're, we are going to ultimately see an evolution where uh, where we are disintermediating a lot of these guys. So just to add to Neil's point, right, Dominic, so software is great at executing happy day scenarios, right? So when things just fly through, you know, software basically can scale zillion times, no problems at all. It is the unhappy day scenarios, the exception scenarios is where you need orchestrators, the paying agents, who do you sue if the money doesn't flow in, right? If there's no balance. And that is something that, you know, we need to figure out. It's not yet figured out. And that's basically where, you know, if you ask me, those are the hoops and hurdles that we have to cross as to what happens when a smart contract fails. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Thanks for that, uh, Rajiv. Now, um, Neil, you brought up the question of DeFi a, a few minutes ago. We had a very interesting question here from Michael Burton, uh, who says, regarding using DeFi to pledge tokenized assets as collateral, highly liquid bonds, for example, he has two questions. How do you envision custody and rehypothecation of the assets working? How do you see the leverage, the second question, how do you see the leverage function that traditional prime services provides evolving? They typically use bank balance sheets. In other words, he's looking forward to a future which we can have prime brokerage without prime brokers. So you can start lending these tokens, whatever mm -hmm. they are. He gives the example of bonds to raise credit. Uh, and you don't need the investment bank balance sheet coming between you and the and the lender. Um, we see this kind of we kind of see this happening in DeFi, don't we? But mm -hmm. I mean, how far away are we from this happening in the security token markets or, you know, traditional people started, traditional firms started getting involved in that type of business. Yeah, I, I'll start with that. Um, I, I think that there's a massive question uh, on this topic from a risk and compliance perspective. It goes back to what I had said earlier is that if you're going into DeFi, you need to know, or if, if you're lending or, or working with a counterparty, you need to know who that counterparty is today to be able to assess that risk. In DeFi, theoretically, you don't really know who you're transacting with. And so to the point earlier, Rajiv, who do you sue if something goes wrong? What if the code breaks and, and you lose your assets? At that point, you're kind of SOL, right? So I think that there's going to be this evolution of, again, standardization and the ability to be able to manage all of this through the code. But I do agree that, that those unhappy path scenarios are, are going to need to be addressed. Um, and ultimately, when it comes down to sort of this prime brokerage aspect of it, I don't know uh, how many folks in the audience have um, have tried to execute a DeFi trade today, but it's not easy. Uh, you got to go create a MetaMask wallet. You then have to link it to a DeFi protocol. Then you, there's uh, 15 different steps that need to occur. And so uh, until that is solved and until there's a more efficient way to access those markets, I think we're, we're not really going to see... Um, traditional FIs and institutions really jump in. Uh, that being said, 
uh, we are seeing a lot of interest from some of the traditional asset managers in exploring this space. Uh, and we do have through, through the Fireblocks platform, the ability to easily access DeFi. Um, and, and we're starting to see uh, a lot more interest on, on in that space uh, from the traditional guys. Uh, but it's at first starting with a lot of the crypto native funds uh, that just want a, an easier and again, more standardized way to access a lot of this. Yeah, it's automated market making. And you could understand people want to go there. There are plenty of people who like using algos for trading. But any of those marketplaces that are DeFi have got to answer two questions. Number one, who's the operator? Number two, which judge do I go and see in which country when all the smart stuff and the ever so clever code doesn't work? You know, my, my assets got locked up in this smart contract and they're going around trading and I want to get out. I want to hit the stop button. The stop button didn't work. So is David the operator? Do I go and see a judge in Ireland? If you can't answer that question, you shouldn't be playing there. If you're an institutional, if you if it's retail and you want to go bet a thousand bucks, hey, terrific, knock yourselves out. You know, don't cry wolf if you lose your thousand bucks. But you're not going to do that if you're institutional. And well, I want and to, to double tap on that, Dominic. That, yeah. that I think to Neil's point, the institutions that we're talking to as well are realizing that 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 notion of who the actual counterparty is is generally a software provider without a balance sheet, not registered, not insured. And you know they um, they really need those things. So while it's it's exciting to think about this trustless sort of, of world where everything is truth over trust and we're going to disintermediate the banks, institutions are not going to put hundreds of millions, let alone billions of dollars, on a web browser uh, to access a DeFi market. It's just not going to happen. And so I do think you're going to see banks come in, particularly when you you know part of the question was around leverage. Um, any meaningful leverage requires a balance sheet and any sort of extension of credit. And we're starting to talk to some banks about how they may do that uh, through partnerships. Funny enough, I remember from my days in the hedge fund industry, the institution most likely to go off with your assets was actually the prime broker. Um, so there are advantages to being tokenized. Um, Olaf, there's a specific question for you. Um, should there be an institution to handle all posts? This is from Emre. Sabisi, should there be an institution to handle all post-trade settlement chain? You know, has has DeFi proved its worth yet? I think the answer, to the second part of that question, is no. But do do you think a utility is the answer here, Olaf? Um, we think that you you're going to need some utility functions in the digital asset space. As I said, if you look at look at this trinity of things you're going to end up with: execution venues, asset custody, and means of payment something's got to unite them. And today that something is ICSBs, CSBs, that makes the process there. So we, we need to come up with a substitute function for settlement and risk management. And whether we end up doing atomic trading and settlement and trade and settle instantly, or we settle later the same day, or we settle T plus one, there's a whole bunch of philosophy around that. Um, something needs to unite those things. Um, otherwise, uh, if you look at what people are doing in the crypto markets today, you can see what happens if you don't have some commonplace. In the crypto markets, if you trade with five OTC brokers, you've got five settlements to do, even if you, if you settle net. And I might not be able to settle with Neil because Jack didn't settle with me. And we have a mess. And we know all about that stuff. And that's why we've had CSDs and ICSDs. So, Somewhere we've got to figure out what settlement looks like. We have to do that for crypto. And we can, well, we need to do that for crypto on the way to wider digital assets. So we need something, something central in, with some capabilities. Okay, let's, let's move on a bit now. Um, one of the things that struck me as, as ironic was that Coinbase, this highly successful, you know, highly regulated um, crypto exchange decided to uh, to go public not by doing a token issue but by <laughs> listing itself on on Nasdaq and issuing um, conventional equity. My question is, and and Rajiv, perhaps you have some thoughts on this. Can the crypto, you know, you end up with this centralized exchange um, being at the center of this so-called decentralized market? So my question to you, Rajiv, is: Do you think the crypto currency exchanges are going to be able to evolve from where they are now? To support uh, security tokens, um, because some of them have built up a less than favourable relationship or, or indeed reputation with with regulators. Um, and David, you probably have some views on this as well. 
Um, what do you think, um, Rajiv? Are cryptocurrency changes going to evolve successfully or not? So for you know, the way you have to look at it is there is enough demand for them to grow, and you know they're able to actually show growth coming through the crypto ecosystem. Um, it's slightly regulated, but eventually uh, the traditional asset market, the traditional exchange market is too big to ignore for them. If they have the efficiencies and if they have the processes in place, and we have to also remember that the new age income, the new age, new entrants are digitally native, Dominic. So they don't have the legacy infrastructure that, you know, a large institutional um, player might have. So they're going to be inherently more efficient. And as the need for growth comes uh, I do think that you know they'll have to basically venture into this particular space, and and that is where the old and the new worlds would sort of converge. How soon will it happen is is another question, but I definitely think that if not all, some of the large players coming in from the digital asset ecosystem will will become regulated, uh, will basically touch the traditional securities world, uh, will bring in some efficiencies. Uh, that's that's uh, you know at least in my view that's inevitable. Uh, that they will come into this market because you know it's simply too large for them to ignore. Okay, David, yeah. which which model is going to which model is going to succeed? You you have these irony of these centralized exchanges like like Coinbase and Binance and FTX, and then in the DeFi world you've got genuinely decentralized exchanges, the Uniswap. Which of these, David, is going to succeed in the long run? Do you think? Um, I think probably the centralized crypto exchanges at the moment have an advantage, and they probably have an advantage into the medium term. Um, one of the things I was just going to add to what uh, uh, Rajiv was just saying there was just the, the big advantage, I think, of some of the crypto exchanges at the moment is that they're effectively an on-ramp for a lot of investors to get into these asset classes. I think when you look at the kind of decentralized equivalents, they're not quite at that kind of stage. Um, I'd also say that probably those um, centralized uh, crypto exchanges um, have, uh, apart from, you know, kind of particularly well capitally backed they also have um, a growing level of trust, I think, among investors as well. So I just think that they have the edge at the moment, uh, certainly from my perspective. I should also mention, uh, mentioned Coinbase there. We're, we're the auditor of Coinbase. So I can't comment too much on them, but um, they did address the question you raised actually as to why they went with an IPO rather than a, a coin offering. And part of it kind of comes back to some of the issues that you mentioned at the beginning, which is kind of regulatory uncertainty and other, you know, access to investors was a kind of a significant aspect to that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I do believe, I, I could be wrong here, but I do believe that Coinbase is licensed uh, to, to be a securities exchange itself. So theoretically, they could have issued uh, um, their, their own uh, equity through themselves. Uh, but I think access to liquidity is, is a key there. And, and if we look at the major exchanges across the globe, they don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to deal with tokenized issuances. And so if you want to get access to the broader investor base, I think that's going to be uh, key in terms of uh, of adoption there. Now, an exchange is not enough. You need liquidity as well. And liquidity doesn't just arrive of its own accord by some magic process if you tokenize an asset. Are we going to need market makers, lead brokers, people who actually bring investment banks to bring liquidity? We were talking a while ago about, about prime services. Um, we're obviously major suppliers of, of, of liquidity to, to, to the debt and indeed the equity market. So, um, Jack, what, 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 what's going to bring liquidity to tokenized security markets? I'd say um, in the longer term, the benefits of tokenization should feed upon itself and generate should be a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you have greater liquidity, greater transparency, smaller investments, thresholds to get in that should do its job of attracting more investors, hence more liquidity. In the near term, the question is, how do you, how do you um, stock the pond, if you will? And in this particular POC, we're working on this very issue with, with the asset manager of the risk of building it, hoping they will come and, and they never come or they come very slowly. And so what we're doing specifically with them is going to the distributors who currently work with this large asset manager and asking them to lean into this and to start to generate some liquidity. And even in, in one idea that we're exploring is the, the issuer itself um, starting to, to generate some liquidity and providing some liquidity just to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there will be a, a definite need for um, sources of liquidity to create the market that will then attract uh, other investors to come. Over time, it will take care of itself, but in the early days, we're gonna need some seed capital to get this going, I think. 
So Dominic, this is this is what I would say: developing of minimum viable ecosystems, like minimum viable products. You know, we you know there's going to be a consortia or a group of you know financial market uh, you know participants that are going to come together to sort of kickstart. We do have a cold start problem in tokenization, especially right. We do have a cold start problem and minimum viable ecosystem building out these things. Uh, you know, as as Jack was mentioning, you know, some seed capital, some liquidity. And you know you're basically doing that uh, to get gain some amount of first mover advantage and of course right to reap efficiencies. That's that that's another angle uh, in the traditional world. Mm-hmm. Now we had an interesting question on on and this is pertains to liquidity. So it's from Fabian uh, Vandenrate, which is when will we see cross collateralization possibilities between tokenized assets and current collateral pools of of legacy assets? In other words, there'll be a kind of flow of of assets across the boundary between the traditional security markets and tokenized security markets so that a greater quantity of collateral becomes available that can drive repo and stock loan markets which can in turn drive securities lending i mean the question is it's going to happen it's going to happen happen. sam at ftx has been talking about doing it um we just did a series b round that cowan the investment bank led and we're talking uh, to them about providing clients the ability to cross collateralize other assets that are in their portfolio. So I think it is it is a hot topic of conversation. You are going to see this start to play out, I would think, over the near to medium term. Uh-huh. I think HQLAX would be another example of that one, Dominic, where um, Clearstream, uh, with a number of the banks, have uh, tokenized baskets of assets to help uh, collateral upgrade trades. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Vigo. Uh, Sachs has made it has also asked here about something we talked about a minute ago about stock exchange groups moving into this space rather than the crypto exchanges. In other words, his argument is that traditional exchange groups have better uh, reputations, better technology, maybe better digital DNA than some of these crypto exchanges. Um, and I'd throw into this as well, and, and maybe Olaf, you're a good person to start beginning to address this. The same is true of custody. Um, you know, we, we've got specialist digital asset custodians emerging because they know how to do this stuff. But we're also seeing the, the traditional global custodian banks starting to take an interest in, in how all that works. And some of them offering cryptocurrency custody services of their own. So is there a kind of convergence taking place here or likely to take place here between traditional exchanges and crypto exchanges, between uh, crypto custodians and uh, global custodians? Well, the, the answer to the latter bit is, is definitely you have firms like Neil's coming along, they've got great custody tech for, for the matter at hand. You can you can custody Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever on their stack, but somebody needs to own that. Now, do you want to do self-custody? Go do it all yourself. Or do you want to do sub-custody, buy it from a service provider? And as we've been looking around at this, uh, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about this in, in Six Group and STX because naturally, We've got a huge installed base of clients who've got both Swiss assets and international assets with us. Um, if you look back to the 90s when, when Jim O'Neill and the guys at um, Goldman dreamt up bricks, people, institutions didn't rush out to own their own broker or their own custody operation in Brazil or Russia or whatever. You know, they rang a trusted provider and said, hey, you know, Citibank, can you help us out in Moscow? So inevitably, you're going to see some of those institutions on, on the way in are going to say, hey, um, Fidelity uh, and the like, uh, who are in the custody game, can you do these marginal assets that we want to invest in? So I see the custodians needing to extend their offering. In in a way, it's almost like being a a private bank. If you're a private bank today, uh, and we've heard this firsthand here in Switzerland, do you offer access to cryptocurrencies, yes or no? Well, one is a philosophical question, the other is an infrastructure question. If your philosophy is no, what happens um, when the uh, the owner of the assets dies and the heir comes in to see the CEO of a private bank? And this is a true story. Um, the young man who's inherited these assets says to the CEO of a private bank, well, with all this money I've just inherited, I'd, I'd like to buy some cryptocurrency. And we got it obviously wasn't in English. It was either in French or in German, but the equivalent, dear boy, that's a terrible idea. Why on earth would you do such a stupid thing? Uh, to which the young man replies, well, that's great. I'll move all, I won't just move some of my assets down the road. I'll move all of them. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the same problem if you're a custodian. If you've got a fund wants to put 2% of their assets in cryptocurrency, you've got to go out and talk to the likes of Neil and say, hey, Neil, how, how do we do this stuff? 
um, you, you've got to get over the philosophical hump because uh, you're in the service business. Right, I'm, I'm desperate to hear from uh, Jack because he's a specialist and, um, and Rajiv because he is a, a custodian bank. But perhaps, Neil, you could give us a view on this on this first, because you're, you're right at the heart of how institutions are evolving their custody offerings. What do you see happening between the traditional world and the and the specialist? Digital yeah, custody world? I think it's it's a really sort of fine line right now. Uh, between let's call it specialist, traditional, and then direct custody. And I think that we're starting to see the, the specialist firms uh, out there really getting the, the sort of uh, the, the lower end of the market, some of the, some of the smaller banks uh, working with some very niche uh, specific use cases with even some of the larger banks. Uh, but my view personally is that as some of the larger traditional custodians start to get into the game, you look at a Bank of New York who's leveraging Fireblocks uh, for their institutional custody platform, um, that that is going to then attract a lot of these asset managers and, and other banks who are looking for a custodial relationship in the space. I, I do think that there are a number of forward-thinking uh, financial institutions out there. If you look at some of the fintechs and the neo banks, and I think we've seen this in the market with uh, with PayPal and their acquisition of Curve earlier this year, uh, Revolut migrating from the, the sub-custody model over to Fireblocks, where it is difficult to grow and scale a business. And so I think it really all depends upon the use case that you're looking to deliver to market and what your volume and and uh, and, and how vertical are you looking to go with the, the products and services you're lo- looking to deliver to market uh, is, I think, really the, the key aspect of deciding on, on the custody model. So, Rajiv, tell us, what, what do you think, what does a custodian think about custodying not just cryptocurrencies, but security tokens? Yeah, so that's that's the view to take, Dominic. It's, it's you've got to basically get over the hump of looking the digital assets as just solely being crypto. You got to basically take a view of, you know, do you think you know the assets and the way they are represented are going to change in the near future, and how do you evolve your custody platforms and business, right? So and and that would basically inform you on making the choices. And yes, you know, maybe you start to learn about this new system either going external or internal, uh, but developing that capability. And eventually, uh, as Olaf mentioned, right? So you have to have a single pipe using which you have to serve all kinds of your institutional client needs. Uh, and, and do you really want to open yourself up to a, a small competition that become that might much become much larger in the future by not, um, by deciding not to support a, a specific type of asset representation? You got to look at digital assets as you know representation of asset through software, and then develop your custody platforms to be able to support that kind of representation. Now, you know whether the asset is backed by value or it is a crypto, it's it's a different question. But you need your core platforms to be able to support uh, custody of tokenized assets, and, and I, I I think that's where uh, large custodians would be traveling to, or you're already on the path of uh, in in that journey. Mm-hmm. Jack, a, a comment from you on this question. Sure, and we've talked to many of the of the large banks, and I, I largely agree with Neil's points and, and um, many of Rajiv's. I think the analysis of most, if not all, the big global uh, custodians is: do we do we buy, do we rent technology, or do we build it from scratch? Building it from scratch is going to take a long time, and it's really hard to do. It's hard enough to get engineers; they want to go to smaller startups where they can get equity and grow quickly, it's hard to attract the talent that it would take to build uh, this sort of solution. And I think also the big custodial banks are not gonna be first movers. They've even told us as much. They wanna see demand in in their face before they're actually going to move. But yet when the demand is there and the large institutions, the millenniums and the Bridgewaters or the pensions go to them and say, hey, it's time, I wanna buy some Bitcoin. What can you do for me? They need to have a solution in place. And so, you know, licensing uh, Fireblocks uh, infrastructure and that stack and building around it is an option. I think there's going to be an M&A boom, which I referenced earlier, where large banks over the next two to five years will be buying specialist firms like ours uh, to advance their their effort in this place. Uh, Brand matters for sure. And I agree with Neil's premise that, you know, having a Bank of New York Mellon flag out there will attract a lot of institutions who gain comfort. We're seeing the same thing with the partnership with Cowan. 
for the ability for a uh, an institutional investor to continue to do business with a known known counterparty across the table with a new asset class or new service is far preferential than developing new relationships with counterparties that that these big organizations just don't have any relationship or rapport with. So brand matters a lot. And, um, and, and I think you're going to see the industry adapt pretty quickly here. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one, one other, one other uh, I think, topic back swinging to the regulatory side is that the view of what does custody mean in the digital asset space is, I think, much different from the traditional space. And, and I think there's a hurdle to jump there, really from an education perspective, with risk and compliance teams with regulators, with central banks on what does it mean to actually custody a digital asset? Because at the end of the day, it's ultimately the ownership of the private key. And so it's much different and it's a much different concept from a a traditional custody relationship. And so I think that there needs to be a lot more discussion around what that means and and working with firms like Deloitte and and, and advisors and consultants, I think can can definitely help spur a lot of that to to get just more education out there in the market. Since you brought up private keys, um, uh, Neil, are you guys looking at um, tying tokens to digital identities instead of private keys, assuming digital identities become available? Uh, that I am not familiar with in terms of what we're looking to deliver to market uh, right now, uh, so can't really comment on that. Yeah. Okay, I just spoke to a to a to a, an organisation the other day, which is starting to explore that. It's, it strikes me as an interesting development because it's less catastrophic. Um, it, it is, yeah, no, it's it, it is interesting. And then, how does that ultimately tie into this world of NFTs as well? Um, yeah. And so, I, I think, yeah, it, it, this is all kind of melding together. Um, I think you can't talk about tokenization without talking about Bitcoin, without talking about NFTs, without talking about DeFi. And so, um, mm-hmm. I think they're all kind of different parallel paths that we're all taking right now. But ultimately, they're they're going to converge. And the question is, is that going to be in the next year? five years or 15. Yeah, I'm afraid we're well into our last five minutes here. So I think I'd, I'd like to just perhaps get, get each of you to, to give us some, some closing thoughts here. Before I do, I just read this uh, comment by Emre Sabisi here, where he says, um, uh, DeFi adoption may ultimately prevail against the crypto uh, currency exchanges. However, it seems the central banks, the BIS, et cetera, I'm sure he has in mind their um, FATF as well, Financial Action Task Force, uh, they will do their best to take down, i.e. regulate uh, DeFi before that. Now, whether or not you agree with that comment, of course, regulation, you know, to many of us appears a natural thing to do because it brings in institutional money, gets them comfortable, helps these markets reach that tipping point Jack referred to right at the outset where this thing really starts to, to take off. But at the same time, it does risk losing a degree um, of, of innovation. So if I asked each of you what you thought would be the... Um, the factor, the balance, if you like, between what's regulated and what's um, what remains a sphere of pure innovation um, that will help the security token markets to take off. I wonder what you what you would what you would say now, David. Perhaps we could begin with with you. You know, we've got jurisdictions who, who've passed laws specifically to regulate tokens. Liechtenstein, Switzerland, as as Olaf mentioned, uh, Gibraltar. Others, um, Mauritius is working on something. So soon we'll have jurisdictions where everything's absolutely clear in legal and regulatory terms, but um, at the same time, some degree of innovation might be lost. So my question is not terribly coherent, but I'm really trying to ask you, what's gonna, what's gonna detonate the security token markets? Um, well, I think there's, uh, obviously there's kind of a number of kind of obstacles that we've talked about. You mentioned the regulatory one there, and as that kind of clarifies, that kind of helps. Um, we've talked about ecosystem. That's So all of these things are kind of important things to have in place that are, that allow a, you know, the, the security token markets scale. I think ultimately though, you need a particular type of asset class to really take off. You need one asset class probably to kind of take off. Um, and, um, I, I, still, I still think it's early days in terms of what that asset class actually is. So I think you, you need something that's going to prime the pump, if you like, and really kind of drive activity. And so for me, I think it's really figuring out which, which asset class is really going to be the one that drives this initially, at least to, 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 to get it to kind of a point where it starts to scale. And what about that point that Emery is making about 
about regulation. What if what if the FATF does come up with a bunch of international standards which all jurisdictions agree to? That's great in one sense because we get a global marketplace on a level playing field. Um, do you think that would be as helpful as I'm making it sound? No. <laughs> Obviously, that's a lot harder to achieve um, than it sounds. So, uh... all right, um, Rajiv, what's what's your detonator? A couple of things. So, correct. Either an asset class that basically, uh, you know, that's you know, it's backed by asset that that's tokenized. Or the second thing is, I think a financial market infrastructure provider basically getting and creating a tokenized. Uh, and, and we see that happening, you know, in some sense, in markets like Australia and in in Hong Kong uh, or in Singapore, right? So there's this steps being taken. Uh, they're slightly far off right now, uh, 2023, 2022, but it is beginning, right? So they're using the underlying technology for efficiency sakes. But you know, once they go live, you know, it could have that snowball effect. You know, uh, things more things would be possible. You know, and and the other thing is, as settlements time compress, you would also look at newer tech to sort of give you that edge, uh, and and that could also uh, drive the tokenization uh, adoption. Mm -hmm. If the regulators don't kill it off, of course. Now, Olaf, that's an interesting thought there from Rajiv. Financial market infrastructures have a crucial role to play here in helping security token markets take off. I know you're not going to disagree with that, but can you explain to us why you agree with it? Um, I'd agree with it. It gets back to the point I made about settlement. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you can make the settlement part easy, then more people can participate um, more easily. Um, and conceivably as well, if I look at some of the things we're doing uh, around SDX, you can make what's new as backwards compatible as possible with the things that, that the banks have got. So if you know, Rajiv is a client of, let's pick UBP in Geneva and he wants to put 2% of his assets in crypto or wants to buy a digital bond, he doesn't want new. He just wants the new asset. He doesn't want a whole bunch of new infrastructure. They don't want to say going to see another bank. So we have to help those banks do that and transform between the, the old and the new. Uh, we, we understand that and you'll see You'll see some of that um, when, when we do um, the first issuances on, on the new uh, STX exchange, uh, that effectively you're, you're bridging between the two things. The other side is the banks have to play along. So yes, they want to, they want to continue to have their role as an intermediary, um, but they need to take those first steps on what's a long journey. Those first steps are just a pain in the neck. It's another venue to execute at, it's another place to fund, it's another place to have custody. It's just more of the same in that sense. But uh, if you don't take the first few steps, you never get started. Um, so we need us as a, as a common standard, uh, as the FMI. You, you need the banks to play along to help their customers make these marginal investments in, in, in new assets and take a, take a time horizon that's not just um, the next quarter or even the next two years. Um, I think Rajiv was talking about that earlier. You know, this, this is a couple of years thing. They, they've got to commit for the long haul. Okay, well, here's an idea for you from Fabian van den Rate, which is dual issuance of green, green bonds. You can have it both in traditional form and in tokenized form. Watch, a, watch, watch this space is okay. the answer to, 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 to that, not in its entirety, but dual, dual bonds, yet watch this space. Okay, Fabian, you've got your answer. Jack, uh, you, you've heard the rather unenviable position of being the fourth person to, to be asked this question, but you know, choose the asset class build a backwards compatible financial market infrastructure, bridge the gap between the old world and the new. What's your detonator for, for growth? Because we desperately need one. I think it's global regulatory collaboration would be, would be huge. That'd be a watershed event, followed closely by, by uh, settlement, which we're working on. And the global regulatory thing, because it would make it easy for assets to move across national borders, is that your, right. your thinking? Yeah, and, and, the reg and the issuers are really keen to understand that before they really lean into it. So we're doing these narrow POCs, but that becomes an issue because you really want to open up the liquidity pool cross-border. Okay, you're going to so need the regulators to, to, to collaborate on that. So you're excited by the work that FATIF and IOSCO are doing to, to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. Last word from you, um, Neil. Uh, you, you guys obviously very heavily invested in, in the mm -hmm. cryptocurrency market. You're heavily invested in the, in the coming <clears throat> tokenization markets, DeFi and all the rest of it. Um, how hopeful are you that we're going to see something really detonate these markets? They take off into self-sustaining growth very quickly in the next two to three years. 
Yeah, I, I think that we're in the in the incumbent space in the the traditional space where we're getting we're getting there uh, slowly. I think it's baby steps. It's evaluating the technology. It's understanding. I think Rajiv said it earlier. Uh, what are the operational efficiencies? What are the cost savings that we're going to achieve through this? Uh, if we want to look at what could theoretically be a, a catalyst for this market to really grow, is I think we missed it with Coinbase, but but another maybe crypto native. Uh, company that instead of going down the IPO path goes down the the tokenization path, and uh, I mean that I I could see that happening in the next couple of years, especially with the amount of retail adoption that we've seen in this space and and the institutional adoption that's coming. Uh, I think it's going to take a leap of faith from from some uh, some crypto native institution looking to go public uh, and have that type of liquidity event. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we have had one STO by by an exchange already, haven't we? Fully regulated, open to the public uh, issue of tokens. In the case of the Inks uh, I, I, ITO, I, I, STO, however you want to put it. Anyway, I think we'd better stop there. We've run over by by five minutes. I'm sorry about that for those who had to go. Um, we must stop. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Neil Chopra from Fireblocks, David Dalton from Deloitte, uh, Jack McDonald from Standard Custody and Trust Company, uh, Olaf Ransom from SDX and Rajiv uh, from HSB Security Services. Thank you, uh, all of you, for your contribution. Uh, I think the audience have found it very interesting and very engaging.